we really became friends in Germany. They were my favorite group, even then. I'd sit there requesting songs <laughs> and uh, hung out with them. And that's how we got to know each other. And the drummer they had couldn't uh, make the gig. And Brian asked me to play, and then he asked me to play and play again. And then he asked me to join. But George was one of the, the main instigator of that. Someone told me they are very, very popular, most popular group. I felt bad that I didn't know about them. And then I met all the four. But somehow something clicked from the very first moment with George. And someone tell me that he has played sitar in Norwegian wood. And I felt bad again that I hadn't heard about it. But he, from the very first moment, started me asking questions, you know, in relation of spiritual feeling and uh, music and... I was very, very impressed by his interest like that. I was studying Indian music with some guys in L.A., and I met Ravi. And one thing led to another, and I met George and did an album with, uh, I think it was Ravi Shankar and Friends was the first album we did together. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when I met George. A lot of the Indian uh, influence comes out in some of his... Um, melodies and, and just ideas and timing. He has funny timing, you know, I always write in 4-4 full full because I'm too lazy to count. But some of these tunes are in like 1753 time. You know, and you go like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 9, 12, 13, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, And I can't be bothered to do that because it's like, it's a pain in the ass because she's trying to sing, you know, at the same time. And there aren't that many tunesmiths around, people that actually give you melody uh, a lot of rhythm sections, but not a lot of melody. And George was a melody writer, and a very beautiful melody writer. One that would, uh, you know, his songs would leave you um, with that wonderful bridge between a lyrical content and the melody. George was bold enough to do that, change time signatures, um, change key with ease, but always using his favorite chord, which was the diminished. He had a lot of uh, really interesting chords, you know. He used... Uh augmented and, and diminished chords a lot. He called them the naughty chords. <laughs> and then when you come back, the second time around it goes. Which is the diminished. The thing was, I had a great guitar, you know. I managed to get hold of a Gibson guitar. And the story has it that uh, he picked it up and had his picture taken with it while I was in the toilet because he, he didn't think I'd let him touch it. <laughs> and he's right, I wouldn't have done. <laughs> Eric and I met him first when we were out promoting Holy Grail. We were out in L.A. And, uh, and somebody, I don't know how the connection happened, but there was some kind of do after, uh, and it wasn't even connected with the film, but uh, and he said, George Harrison is there, he'd like to meet you. And so we went there, and I remember sitting with George and Eric, and Jim Keltner was there, who I discovered had gone to high school with Carol Cleveland from Python. So it was like these circles began to close in on, on us, and, and, and George was just George, and it was great. And uh, so that was the beginning of the friendship. I think, I don't think I'd met George an awful lot before Life of Brian, before he became my producer. When we were doing Life of Brian, uh, EMI were putting up the money, and 
on the Thursday before the Saturday. Saturday was the day the crew was going out to um, Monastir in Tunisia to start prepping the film. And on the Thursday, Bernie Delfont, who ran EMI, I think, had read the script the night before and decided it was blasphemous and pulled the plug. So the whole project came crashing down and, and we were desperate and Eric, he asked George, yeah, would you like to get involved? Would you like to help? And George came right in there, done. And so that was the beginning of handmade films, everything. George was given and invited us to one of these big do's for handmade films. And they were all sat there with the old dicky bows on and Carl Perkins up there. And he asked if I and George would get up and play with him. So we both got up, so we grabbed the guitar and Carl did his set and we were both playing away. And I thought to myself, I don't know what to play here. You know, he's covered. What what can I play? So I just turned my guitar down and sort of, not mine, but I played the thing, but he didn't need it. If I'd have played in there, he would have ruined it because it was covered. Carl had it all together. He was so good at it. And when we came up, I said to, George said to me, I couldn't hear you, Joe. I said, no. I said, because I, I turned my guitar off because I figured I wasn't needed on it. He said, so did I. So both of us did. We were, neither of us played. Well, Billy we met in Germany when he was playing with Little Richard. And he was 16, 17 then. Incredible musician. And then he came to England years later. He was like part of the band. Oh, he's so great. And he gave us a different feel because he's Billy. That, that's why he played on a couple of tracks. And from then we met him again. And, you know, we just bumped into him and he played on George's record. Virtually everybody on the stage had been involved at some point in making uh, those songs that we were playing, George's songs, George's material, uh, being a part of the original records or being, you know, being around it, being performing it, whatever. So it was picking up those places where we'd left those pieces and, and, and uh, bringing it to life again. And realising how, once again, I think as Eric has said, how incredibly beautiful those songs are. When I got there uh, to the Albert Hall gig and I saw all those musicians, well, all of them were there because they wanted to be there. They wanted to play and they wanted to show their skills to everybody, uh, uh, you know, as a tribute to George. And I looked and I thought, this is going to be the biggest mess you've ever heard. There was one point where I turned around and I looked and there was like eight people playing guitars alongside me and all left-handed, right-handed, different kinds of guitars. And I reeled around and there was just guitar, 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 guitar. And I was like, ah, I have to look away from all of this. So I turned towards the drummer, just expecting to see Jim or something. And then there were four drummers. <laughs> but it wasn't because these guys know, you know, it's not what you play sometimes, it's what you don't play. All those musicians there, anyone that played with George and anyone that knew him knew one thing was very important, that all George's music came from the heart, not from the paper. Uh, Danny doesn't play drums because of me, because I was here once and he was a baby. And I used to always give lessons to kids, you know, because kids love to make that noise. Anyway, Danny comes in and said, Danny, come on, play the drum. Bam, look at that. And he just ran out the room screaming. <laughs> and I probably did run out screaming. Um, but I had this little mini pearl kit. 
and it used to have it set up in the hall and so they'd all sit around playing their acoustics and I don't know if you remember but I'd sit there and drum and apparently I could keep time I can't remember any of this and apparently I was a good drummer mm. um, until Ringo came along <laughs> until Ringo came and frightened it out of me he had one of the greatest bullshit meters of anybody I know he could see right away something in you that if it wasn't right that was it that always made me feel kind of good, like, you know, he didn't see my bullshit. <laughs> As we got close to here, this beautiful rainbow came up, you know. Big, huge rainbow out into the fields, and I just thought, well, there he is, you know. He's, uh, he's going to welcome everybody in, you know. That would have been a George kind of thing to do. I remember him talking, you know, about the journey of the body and all that, and your death, and when... It's just, you know, your, your journey goes on. It's just, you know, your, your body's leaving, but you're going on. He talked about that quite a lot. For, I mean, he would talk a lot, George, anyway. I mean, <laughs> I always loved that quiet beetle bit, because, you know, George could, could talk for England, really. He, he was my main man, George. He, he made a lot of people feel that way, though, you know? Not a lot, I guess, but... The people that were his friends, you could really, really... He really made you feel like you were special in his life. First thing he ever taught me. It's a simple D, E to A, all Buddy Holly songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for that, that. Yeah, still can't cool. play it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 hi, 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 hello, goodbye, and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is wide, wide screen, screen, podcasting. Of course, my name is Sam Wiles. I am your host. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Okay, everyone, we're taking a quick break from our look at the singles box set that we've been steadily working our way through. And instead, we're going to be talking about a concert. A concert film, a live album, an experience, a historical moment. We're going to be talking about a lot here, folks. And the topic is something that I've wanted to cover almost since the very inception of this podcast over half a decade ago. The album is regularly on rotation. The film is regularly a part of my viewing, especially a part of my YouTube habits. And oddly enough, one of the songs from this project is actually still on my Spotify most played songs of the year list. Yeah, it's a big one, all right. And one that really does not need any introduction. Folks, we're finally here. Today, we're going to be discussing 2002's The Concert for George. Now, I know that this isn't a McCartney project, a McCartney album per se, but if you haven't already guessed that Paul features on it somewhat, then you really haven't been paying attention, have you? Yes, everyone, this is me somewhat taking advantage of the fact that Paul plays a small-ass role in this gig. 
as the perfect excuse and launching off point to talk about the whole thing in the regular Paul or Nothing level of detail. Like I said, I've wanted to do this one forever, so had my guest, uh, the person who I'm going to be speaking in in the future episodes, and so this is mostly an excuse for us to get this whole thing off our chest and out of our system, because as you are going to see, we had a lot to say about this one. But we can't get right into that just yet, as I first got to do's my educatings, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's, all of that. And so, as per a usual part one, we are going to be going through the backstory, the context, and the trivia behind the concert for George. We're going to cover how it came about, the different formats of the concert, and all the different unique differences on each one. All of the musicians that took part, yes, all of them, sales figures, critical reception, the whole shebang that you've all become accustomed to, I am sure. And then, in the next two instalments, we'll be cutting to the live feed for a very extensive and very lengthy discussion about the show, about the concert, about the songs, with my good old chum, my brother from another mother, Mr. Dylan C.V. Right, I really don't think I need to hype this one up much, folks. I know you all love the concert for George. You all know I love the concert for George. So let's just stop all of this foreplay and get stuck right in, quite literally, ooh, uh, matron. Here we are. This is the concert for George. Although we're not going to be starting off as positively as one may think with something like this. As there is a serious event behind all of this. There is a reason why there is a concert for George. Something had to precede this for this concert to take place, and I thought it would be pertinent to just go over that. Yes, it is indeed time for us to discuss the death of George Harrison. George Harrison has lost his five-year fight with cancer. He died last night at the age of 58 at the home of friends in Los Angeles. His wife and son were at his bedside. In a statement, the family said, he left this world as he lived in it, conscious of God, fearless of death, and at peace. Sir Paul McCartney led the tributes this morning, describing him as a baby brother. Our first report is from our arts correspondent, Nick Hyam. Tributes from fans today at Abbey Road, the London recording studio forever associated with George Harrison and the Beatles. I'd known he was sick for a while, but you know, never really thought it would, would happen. It's always tragic, you know, when someone, someone like him passes. His contribution to the band is everything. I mean, he played, he was the guitarist. He is the Beatles. George Harrison helped supply the soundtrack for an entire generation, including the British and Irish prime ministers. Sorry. I mean, we grew up with the Beatles. You know, their music, uh, and the band, the personalities of the band were the background to our lives. And I think people will be very sad at his death. Among the tributes today, one from Paul McCartney, friend, collaborator, fellow legend. He's uh, such a brave lad. To me, he's just my little baby brother. Uh, we grew up together and uh, I knew him in my old hometown, Liverpool. And, um, we just had so many beautiful times together that that's what I'm going to uh, remember him by. The lovely guy who's full of humour, as I say, even when I saw him last time and he was uh, 
obviously very unwell. He was still cracking jokes like he always was. And uh, he'd be sorely missed. He's a beautiful man and uh, the world will miss him. He had this inner energy which was, was, was there even when he was quite tired or whatever the energy. And he was a great talker. This man who was supposed to be the quiet beetle never stopped talking when I was there. You know, he had one full of ideas. Billy Kinsley was on the bill at the Cavern Club in 1963. It was the Beatles' last gig here. Well, George was very laid back. Um, he'd be very, very quiet, and then he'd come out with an astonishing quote. Very, very funny guy. Uh, it's like, I suppose, what Paul and Ringo said, it's like losing a brother. To me, it's probably like losing a cousin, something like that. Yeah, um, I'm very sad, devastated. Uh, we've known he's been ill for a long time, and... Um, just very sad to hear that uh, he's, he's passed on. I've spoken to Olivia and it, um, she's been very strong. She's, uh, and I'd like to ask people maybe to be very kind to her and Danny at this time, uh, George's son. He's a lovely man, I love him dearly. I grew up with him and I like to remember all the great times we had together in Liverpool and with the Beatles and uh, ever since really say I'm very sad for him and his family and for all of us. He's a fantastic guy, Lovely. man, great sense of humor. I was lucky enough to see him a couple of weeks ago and he was still laughing and joking. Um, very brave man. And uh, I'm just privileged to have known him. And I love him like he's my brother. It was a very sad day for me and for a lot of other people. But um, I think he would have wanted us, uh, you know, to get on and be loving and remember him as the great man he was. And yes, everyone, for those who are familiar with it, I did just indeed steal the musical cue directly from Scorsese's Harrison documentary, Living in the Material World. But, oh my God, if you are going to steal, you're going to do it well and steal from the best, surely. Now, anyone who has heard the part one driving rain episode is going to know this all too well but I do love to get a good hour of content out of a significant death in McCartney's life regardless of how negatively it affects the carefree tone of the podcast. So whilst I won't be doing the full coverage of George's death in this episode you'll instead have to wait for the chaos and creation episodes to get that but I will be doing a quick cliff notes version just to catch you all up on what led to the concert for George. Again, like the aforementioned Linda segment in the Driving Rain episode, I am aware going in that this isn't likely going to be the most fun thing we're going to cover on the show, but I do think it's all relevant material considering how emotional I get whenever I listen to slash watch this concert. You know, it only makes sense to approach the material seriously and not just talk about this concert in a kind of light and frivolous manner. So, George Harrison was 54 years old when he was first diagnosed with throat cancer. It was 1997, and he was pottering around in his garden at his Henley-on-Thames home when a worrisome lump on his neck was discovered. Now, whilst this was a shock, George had money to spend, and his initial prognosis, thankfully, looked positive. After a short course of radiotherapy, he was declared cancer-free and he went back up for a follow-up test in 1998 and was again declared cancer-free. 
However, as bad luck would have it, in 1999, a still recuperating George Harrison would sustain a serious and possibly eventually fatal, depending on your view, wound to the neck dealt to him by a violently schizophrenic home invader. Fortunately, Olivia Harrison is a real badass bitch when it comes to wielding a fire poker like Joaquin Phoenix wields a baseball bat in that movie Signs. And so whilst George would also suffer other defensive wounds, he did indeed make a full recovery. Sadly, folks, this happy-ish ending to this part of the story is sadly a bittersweet one, as the damage left to him here, in terms of both the wound itself and the energy and time it would take for him to heal once again, likely left him weaker than ever for the next part of the story. Then, in January 2001... George went on a long promotional tour for the 30th anniversary re-release of All Things Must Pass. And the obviously sickly version of himself, whilst at these press events, betrayed his own privacies. And many a fan presumed that he was indeed still very unwell. By early May, he underwent an operation at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, to remove another cancerous growth. However... It was not in the same location as the last one, and so clearly the cancer had metastasized. This time it was lung cancer. In July of that same year, it was clear that the cancer had continued spreading further than expected, as he subsequently received radiotherapy in Switzerland for a brain tumour. By November 2001, he began a further radiotherapy course at Staten Island University Hospital in New York City. When it became clear that he would not recover, Harrison finally determined that he would not die in hospital, and with security consultant Gavin DeBecker, planned a secret funeral. Harrison travelled to Los Angeles, and after collecting pain-relieving drugs from UCLA Medical Center, was taken to a house rented and later owned by Paul McCartney. He spent 36 hours drifting in and out of consciousness, with his wife Olivia and son Danny by his side. At one point, they were even joined by Ravi Shankar, who played sitar music as they waited. As the story goes, George prepared for death for most of his life, and it was a subject that deeply concerned him and he took very seriously. He didn't exactly revel living in the material world, and he was constantly trying to gain a closer connection with the Almighty, whether it was through his gardening or music or any of his philanthropic endeavours you know George was always just trying to put himself out there in the world and make himself the best person he could possibly be for when he transitions to whatever that next plane is so as he was dying it is likely that he wasn't as scared as many of us will be when you know we are shuffling off this mortal coil this was a sacrament that George had been looking forward to for some time in many ways, and he knew by now how he wanted to leave his body. According to his wife and now widow, Olivia Harrison, he said his goodbyes to his family, and then he, and I quote, lit up the room and died. George Harrison passed away on the 29th of November 2001 at 1.20pm. The cause of death was listed on his Los Angeles County death certificate as metatastic non-small cell lung cancer. 
His body was then wrapped in a shawl and covered in holy oils. He was survived by his wife Olivia and his son Danny. So a year of mourning started. Everyone close to George was clearly devastated by his loss, and those who weren't close to him actually. And all of them were likely looking for an outlet or a way to sufficiently express themselves. Well, it wouldn't be too long before those closest to George started floating the idea of a benefit concert in George's name. I mean, It makes sense, and it's rather serendipitously poetic that 
George, the man who semi-invented the conventional celebrity A-list benefit rock concert with his concert for Bangladesh, um, for him to have one of these. It's just fitting, isn't it? Now, I always thought it was going to be the case that Olivia and Danny came up with the idea for the concert itself, but in an even more cosmical sort of coincidence, it was actually George himself who conceived of the, of the whole thing. Sort of, kind of. I'll let Olivia explain. She said, A long time ago, imagining his ideal gig, George had said, I could do something like that someday. I mean, if I had a special, I would like to have a few people who mean something to me. And he was right. He was so prescient and so right. However, it was not Olivia or Danny's initiative, despite knowing of George's idea, that actually got the wheels moving. As it turns out, it was apparently Eric Clapton that kicked it all off. Olivia continues. It was really Clapton's idea. He phoned me not long after George had died and said, I'd like to do something. Eric was a very deep friend of George's, so I felt confident and relieved that it was Eric coming to me. Now, obviously Eric could have just got the ball rolling and just been a performer. But no, in regards to the concert for George, his role was far more involved as he took on the title of musical director. This basically means he is the director, producer, master of ceremonies, all rolled into one. The entire evening of music was largely constructed by Eric himself. Don't like that Indian music is half the show? Take it up with Eric. Upset that they didn't play Bother Me? Talk to Eric. And so on. But yeah, it makes sense that they would rest this evening on Eric's shoulders. As I'll go into later, he and George had an incredibly long and fruitful relationship. They were always constantly appearing in each other's work, playing the same shows, and generally supporting each other in times of need as friends do. So he's perfect in terms of his relationship to George. But that's not the only reason. He wasn't just a friend of George's either, but also a close friend of the family... And so that's what gives him the crucial Harrison estate blessing. Furthermore, Clapton is a massive act. He is greatly respected in the rock and roll world. He is a titan in his own right, meaning that he also has the clout necessary to wield an authoritative job like this, meaning that maybe aside from McCartney, who didn't have that constant positive relationship with George, sadly, there really was... No one else who could have done this. There was no one more trusted and respected and loved and close to George all at the same time that actually could have brought this all together. You know, the musicians love this guy. The crowd loves this guy. The family loves this guy. Of course, it's going to be Eric. But I'm sure this wasn't all just pure altruism as, like all of us after any death, Clapton was not without his own guilt either as he rather forthcomingly elaborates here. A lot of times during our relationship, I found it very difficult to communicate my feelings towards George, my love for him as a musician and a brother and as a friend, because we skated around that kind of stuff. I was probably dealing a lot with that too, to make amends. Clapton continued his streak of delightfully honest interviews when he directly addresses one of what I would consider to be the elephants in the room, a.k.a. what George would have thought. He said, 
when we were rehearsing, I thought that if he were here, he'd probably say, thanks very much, Eric, but I don't really want this. So yeah, isn't that ever the most alluring conundrum? Can you indeed do a tribute for someone who in all likelihood wouldn't want it? And if you do go ahead with it, who is it for? Is it for those taking part, for the fans, or is it for George? Still, it makes sense that the slightly misanthropic George and the slightly holier-than-thou persona he put out there, you know, someone who would see death as the ultimate ascension to the next stage of consciousness, uh, you know, wouldn't want a celebration of his life in this way. You know, moody old George would never appreciate this kind of fanfare supposedly. Yeah, it really is hard to tell what's true here. Though, at least the person in charge of the whole thing, Eric, was aware of this idea, this potential contradiction, and he wasn't ignoring the implications. And to me, this is just another of the many wonderful considerations that cumulatively go towards making the concert for George the special experience that it is. Although, just going back to Eric as musical director, I wouldn't go so far to say that it was all Eric, as both Olivia and Danny would be key figures in, you know, making the special what it was. You know, Olivia and Danny are the Yoko and Sean here in the sense that they are now the principal parties in charge of the estates, and they have to come out of the gate swinging here. They have to call in favours call people that they know, make sure everyone is on board, get everything rolling, get the money together, maybe remind a few people how much they owe them or how much they'd loved their George. You know, they were never just going to let Eric do the whole thing while they stood at the sidelines. And you can tell it wasn't just Eric because this is just one of the many continual high-quality products and productions that Olivia and Danny, the stewards of George's legacy, have been a part of. You know, this is Olivia and Danny letting us know in the form of a concert that they will indeed be looking after the throne well. You know, this will lead on to other high quality ventures like the aforementioned Scorsese documentary Living in the Material World to, you know, doing new high-quality music videos for George that get that go viral, or, you know, the Grammy Award-winning best box set or you know, special limited edition package award they got for the All Things Must Pass 50th anniversary edition. These are all high-quality post-George Harrison death products, and the concert for George is the start of that, definitely. The concert for George itself was held at the Royal Albert Hall in London on the 29th of November 2002. The Royal Albert Hall seats just under 5,300 people and the concert sold out predictably quickly. All profits for ticket sales for the concert as well as all subsequent Concert for George products went straight to the Material World Charitable Foundation which was founded by George in 1973. The foundation came about in reaction to the taxation issues that plagued his concert for Bangladesh in the early 70s and basically you know that you know there was just so much financial fracas around the concert for, for Bangladesh George decided that the best way to 
combat that was not to like make his own charity, but just to create his own foundation that would allow him to, you know, donate to various causes and promote diverse artistic endeavors and philosophies more effectively and more quickly, you know, without all that red tape around it. Actually, uh, one of the great things George did for the uh, Material World Charitable Foundation was that he assigned the publishing royalties from nine of the 11 songs on Living in the Material World, including the hit single, Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth, to the foundation in perpetuity, which would give them a steady stream of income forever. And then the concert happens, and we'll be covering you know, what actually happened on the night in the next two episodes. But when asked about what she thought of the concert and how it went, Olivia Harrison herself said, The concert for George was all I hoped it could be. I don't think I've ever heard a band play with so much emotion and respect. Now, just before we move on, there's a little bonus bit that I want to throw in here. In doing research for this episode, I stumbled upon a frighteningly helpful source more than halfway through writing it, and after I'd actually recorded both parts with Dylan, and that source was www.jefflinsongs.com, and being that this is the most detailed list of all things Jeff Lynn, which would have been nice to have known about during the Fleming Pie episodes, but yeah, in turn, this means that there are super detailed notes on the concert for George. One of the elements it documents is the leaked bootleg of the quote-unquote entire show. You know, the full album is just under two hours. The full concert film is just under two and a half hours. But there's also a leaked bootleg that contains everything. That even includes the shuffling around, the tuning up, the crowd settling down and coming in, everything. I haven't heard it, but I know it exists. And it is a point of comparison on this jefflinsongs.com and even though we are used to the quote-unquote full concert cut of this film as our main way through to the concert for George uh, the bootleg has a few fun little nuggets that never made any of the cuts that I do just want to highlight and I thought this would be the best place to put it apparently the introduction for Sava Sham is about 30 seconds longer Ravi just talks about the song in, in a little more detail in Eric's introduction, there's a flub that is jokingly referenced several times throughout the gig by both McCartney and Danny, where Eric refers to Olivia Harrison as his wife, Danny. Clearly, Eric was very nervous. He mentions in the show that he hadn't practiced talking, and that's evidence of that. Uh, someone shouts, we love you, Jeff, just before the inner light. Then, like I say, you get loads of instrumental tuning up which apparently is quite suspenseful in the full edit and actually works really well. And then there are also two examples of things you will directly hear me talk about, uh, talk about a lack of in the live portion of the show in the next two episodes. And that is two introductions to songs from Joe Brown. The first one is him going into That's the Way It Goes and him talking about it coming from the Gone Tropo sessions and how much he likes it, which is such an obvious misstep as far as I'm concerned. Like, clearly... You want to know more about this guy and who he is and why he means a lot to George. And I'd love to hear him talk about those two songs just a little bit more. You know, it's like when I found out that there was an extended version of Love You Too on Revolver and how it kind of like gave me a bit of mental closure about that piece of music. But yeah, this is the kind of the same thing here. I would have loved to have seen that. But yeah, that's the concert itself. And so... 
Once all the lucky attendees left the Royal Albert Hall, the next job was to make sure that those who could not get tickets, as well as all future generations, would be able to experience this incredible show. And so work immediately went into the multimedia spectacular that was the concert for George. The first of these projects, and now in the age of YouTube, arguably the most important, was the film of the concert, a.k.a. The Concert Film. You know, as films go, The Concert for George is rather unique in that the show was not put together specifically for a concert film, as is the norm. You know, the usual pattern is that the artist wants to do a concert film to act as a virtual live show for those who can't attend. However, this is a show that was going to happen with or without the cameras, and the cameras were fortunately allowed to film it for posterity. Like, I can't emphasise this enough, that this film was not made for the usual reasons. It was not made for the money, not for publicity, for fame, for recognition. This was just for George and George alone. And if the film did not or could not fit that theme, then I very much doubt it ever would have been made. But who the hell did make this movie? Well, sadly, it wasn't filmed by anyone who directed anything for handmade films, but they got bloody close nonetheless. It was directed by David Leland, who wrote the Bob Hoskins crime noir Mona Lisa, which was a handmade films production. So it kind of counts, I guess. Anyway, for more modern listeners, he directed that Jeremy Irons TV series The Borgias from like 2011. He did some of HBO's Band of Brothers, as well as directing a bunch of stuff that, frankly, I've never heard of. But if none of that was enough to convince you that this director was the man for the job, he was probably chosen because he was the director for the Handle With Care music video. Yes, that one. The film was shot slash had cinematography by Chris Menges, or Menges, who was an old veteran at this point, having shot loads of awesome movies like Ken Loach's Kez, Spalding Gray's The Killing Fields, um, Local Hero, Michael Collins, and that Kate Winslet film where she plays a Nazi, The Reader. It was edited by Claire Ferguson, who was an editor on a film I remember studying at university called Eileen Portrait of a Serial Killer, uh, a documentary by Nick Broomfield as well as editing a documentary in 2007 on the Beatles film, Help. Oh, also, she edited the home release of George's Concert for Bangladesh in 2005, but obviously that was after her stellar work on this. There were three credited producers on the film. The first, suitably, was Olivia Harrison herself. I don't know how much film experience she had, but her ability as George's widow... Um, to pull people together and, like I say, call in favours and act as the final port of call for any creative decision on the project was, you know, unmatched. Then, the second one was initially a little surprising for me, but then I remembered way back to the Living in the Material World documentary. Uh, the second producer was Ray Cooper. Ray Cooper we'll hear about shortly, but he was a percussionist on loads of George's work, but he was very closely tied with George at Handmade Films, and was basically George's man in the office 
for quite a long period of time. The third producer, though, was a man named John Kamen. As chairman and CEO of Radical Media, he's basically one of the world's premium content creators, producing a very prolific and diverse bunch of programming, with about 175 filming credits to his name and growing. Until recently, the first half of his documentary output was mostly hard-hitting, heavy, heady topics, you know, proper stuff. And the other half were kind of modern Netflix style, but slick still puff pieces about every major artist on the planet, from Lady Gaga to Bruce Springsteen to Metallica to Nicki Minaj. But now, like anyone in that game, he's also started dabbling in true crime and serial killers. He's also dabbled in musicals, having been a major mover behind the hugely successful pair of Shrek the Musical and Hamilton. However, one of his very earliest projects was indeed the concert for George. But it's a bit of a one-off for him, really, because even though most of his uh, musician puff piece documentaries do feature concert footage and tour footage quite extensively, they're never full gigs like this. And the only similar thing he's done is the equally stunning and magnificent uh, Utopia live show by David Byrne that came out in 2018. But yeah, not really too sure about this guy. Not sure how he knew... Olivia and maybe Eric or Ray, but clearly, you know, George's film ties must have just brought these people into contact with this guy at some point. They made an impression, they made a friendship, and, you know, he'd already started producing films by this point. He had uh, quite a couple of successful documentaries, and they knew this was going to be filmed. He joined, and I bet he was probably the major money man behind it all, and the man with the most experience. Like, I do give huge props to Eric, and I'll talk about um, Jeff Lynn and how much work they did in putting the show together, but I think this John Carmen, John Cayman fella is also one of the unsung heroes of the concert for George. The film was released theatrically in Los Angeles, New York, and other select locations on the 3rd of October 2003, and was then released in the UK on the 10th of October. The film was then released on DVD, in November 2003. One disc on the double DVD set is the theatrical version of Leland's film, while the other is of the complete concert. It was then later re-released digitally on iTunes in the October of 2011, meaning both the album and the film were now available for download. Then the film was re-released as a Blu-ray, as a two-disc set, on the 22nd of March 2012, Also, it was around this time that its place as a YouTube staple for Beatles fans began, as the full concert was briefly made streaming for free on George Harrison's own YouTube channel. Maybe just for 24 hours, actually, if memory serves. Then, in 2018, the film was reissued along with the album, as well as being made available on streaming for the first time, all part of Harrison's 75th birthday. And then, as we all know... In 2022, the film was released in cinemas, re-released in cinemas, as part of the 20th anniversary celebration of the film. (laughs) Now that I hear all of that in a row, that really is quite a lot of opportunities I've had in the past few years to see this film in the cinemas, especially considering how long I've known this film. I will confess right away, right now, that I have not seen the concert for George in the cinemas Though it wasn't until researching this episode that I'd realised what I'd actually missed out on because 
as I alluded to just a second ago, there is not just one cut of this film that we're dealing with here. I didn't even know this, folks, but there is a different theatrical cut that is shown in the cinema screenings. If this is common knowledge to you, then I do apologise. Like, I can't believe I didn't know this. <laughs> I feel really stupid. I really do. But yeah, I never saw the film in 2018. I neglected to go see it in 2022, even though a mate was going to go see it with me, but it just ended up not happening anyway. And so the opportunity had never presented itself to me to know that there was a difference between the one that I'd seen online for all those years and the one shown in cinemas. Well, if I had have gone, I would have known that the theatrical cut of The Concert for George is a completely different animal. Indeed, it really is worth checking out on its own. It is a completely different product. It's great as a point of comparison and contrast. And despite being the version that was in cinemas and the version that is on disc one of most of the, the releases, it is not considered to be the main definitive version of the Concert for George on film. No, that goes to the disc two version, which is just the, the full concert version, the complete concert version, which is basically just the whole concert with a few trims here and there. So what can be so different about this theatrical cut? Is it just trimmed down? Well, yeah, it is trimmed down. It is a lot shorter, but that's not the only difference. First of all, it is clearly put together with the more casual viewer in mind, and that's, you know, the viewer that's going to exist being dragged along with friends and family, the general Joe Bloggs audience, because rather than just having the concert and the music as is, there's a little bit of additional content sprinkled in to keep the viewer engaged, I guess, or to make it feel like more of a conventional documentary, I guess, rather than just a concert film. For example... The theatrical cut of Arpan fades at the 120 mark to interject interviews and fades in and out for several more interviews several times over before fading to Eric Clapton's guitar part at the end of the song. Uh, several parts of the middle are also cut out entirely, making the song much shorter. Like, the theatrical cut of Arpan is really chewed down and this is another ironic part of me not going to the cinema because I thought my, 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 my part of it was I thought my friend was going to be bored and I didn't want to make him sit through seven hours of Arpan and now finding out that it's actually cut and interjected with interesting little interviews that would have kept him engaged it makes me feel quite stupid now actually I, can't, I really should have gone oh well the next major theatrical cut edit is in the performance of Horse to Water where the second chorus and verse is edited out. Handle with Care is interrupted by interviews with Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne. Also, it cuts some of the repeated chorus at the song's end. The theatrical version of Isn't It a Pity merges the first part of the rehearsal take with the actual concert version, so it starts off with like some rehearsal stuff and then it goes into the final version. The performance of Photograph is interrupted by an interview with Ringo, Again, some of the repeated chorus uh, at the song's end is cut. And then the film fades out a little earlier with its closing version of Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth to add George Harrison's comments about a tribute concert. So if you were far too engaged and enjoying the concert for George, too much to notice all of those differences, I hope that that was useful for you. 
But now we should also in turn highlight the fact that the complete concert version, the version that is just the complete unbroken concert, more or less, uh, has its own unique uh, aspects as well that I just wanted to quickly highlight. These are not available on the CD, the vinyl, or the theatrical cut, I should point out. First off, both Eric and Ravi's introductions are both significantly longer, with both going into more detail about the meaning and the format of the evening. There's a loud voice over the speakers that announce, ladies and gentlemen, it's Monty Python at the start of their first performance. Just before Here Comes the Sun, there's a great passing moment where Joe Brown turns and says to the band, like, like the big stage band, how are we all doing, lads? And finally, just at the end, there's a great comment from Paul just before Joe Brown plays, where he relays a comment from Olivia Harrison that with the fresh-faced doppelganger Danny Harrison on stage, it looked like George had stayed the same age and everyone else had gotten older. Uh, a great moment from Paul in the film. And with all of the sentiment now out of the way, it's time to crunch down with the box office numbers. And thanks to boxofficemojo.com, I actually have a bit of information about the concert for George, or at least more than I expected. Again, according to this website, the original theatrical release for this film generated around $134,600 worldwide, with the 2018 re-release generating another twenty-eight grand. And sadly, no info on the 2022 release, but still a sizable chunk of change again, especially with ticket prices in the state they are now. But either way, this does seem like a frighteningly low number to me. I don't know. I'm no economist or film aficionado in that sense, like the business of film. Now, my initial thought was that maybe just the majority of people would have been like waiting for the DVD, maybe. Like, this is a DVD that did sell out and is quite pricey now on the second-hand market. So maybe that was gobbled up quick. But then I wondered, maybe it just didn't have the release it should have. And when we go to thenumbers.com, not only does it back up the um, box office figures from boxofficemojo.com, but it also gives us a bit of information about the number of theatres the film was released in which sadly was only 105 across the United States, 38 in Australia, an indeterminate number in Mexico, and only three in the UK, at, with no information about whether it was released in Europe at all. Which, come on, that's hardly a Jaws-scale summer blockbuster release schedule, is it? Likely... These cinemas were smaller, more boutique and niche affairs, and not general multiplexes that were also showing The Matrix Reloaded in the screen next door at the time. Ironically, if the film had the reputation it had now, back then, it likely would have done better. But that would not have mattered anyway, as the data again from thenumbers.com puts that this film was only in theatres for a single week, perhaps even shorter than that. This means that even if there were more people that wanted to go, you know, obviously there are people who are going to be unaware or unavailable, but there may be people who wanted to go to see this, but it was only shown once and then they missed the opportunity and then it, it was over. Just limiting revenue once again. 
And this could be quite a frustrating point. You know, I want this to film to do well. I want George to, you know, have the biggest send-off possible. I want this to be a nice cultural phenomenon, you know. And why wasn't that the case? Why didn't they make some more moolah with this by keeping it in cinemas longer? Well, it didn't take me long to realise, and, you know, I'm no accountant, I'm no Wall Street whiz kid, but it's clear that financial gain was not a priority with this release, and that the majority of costs had already been dealt with before the film was even edited. You know, this thing had, had, had already been covered on the night of the concert. So... This small-scale release seems to be more of a small consolation prize to the comparably small number of people who wanted to come to the show and pay their respects to George. You know, the Harrison estate didn't even need to put this film out, and yet they have, and that's a wonderful thing that they've done, especially now that it is available on the internet and on home release and stuff. But... The idea of like putting this in cinemas, you know, for an extended period of time would be just selling out. It really would. And whilst it would make more money, I guess, this this small release that would have very little overhead, that let's say two hundred thousand dollars it has made, is just like printing free money for the George Harrison Material World Foundation. You know, it's free money. So, hey, if it didn't make more, oh well. And I'm sure the DVD and various lucrative box sets have also made a pretty chunk of change for the Harrison estate and that charity as well. Then, after the film came out, the next form by which the public would be able to access the concert for George would be the album release slash releases. Now, sadly, there really isn't much information about the mixing of the album or the post-production period in general, which is doubly a shame, because I'd love to hear Jeff Lynne and Eric Clapton's thoughts on that process. But case sera, sera, and so we can only comment on what we can hear. Now, like all great concert film albums, the audio equipment used for the concert for George's audio was so good and so professional that it's easily usable as the audio for the disc. It's basically just a transfer of the film's audio onto the disc, maybe cleaned up a little bit, maybe a little less uh, audience cheering, that kind of thing. But yeah, this means that the film and the album sound more or less identical, allowing for a very unified experience. But albums are not films, and certain changes would have to be made from one medium to another. And so, with a recording as good as that, all Jeff Lynne really had to do, like I say, was tidy up a bit, and make sure that it all fit on a CD, and that it all flowed properly. When it comes to the unique edits for the albums, um, they are even more pared down than the theatrical cut of the movie, and it's clear that as little chitter-chatter was ever going to be possible, and that the audience of the album was going to have to focus more on the music. This mostly applies to the CD version of the album, as the LP does afford a little more time, but there is nothing unique about the LP or the CD in the sense that there's nothing on either of those releases that aren't available on either of the films. So that does 
kind of point to the full concert edit of the show being the definitive article, you know, aside from being at the actual show, duh. But what you get with the album over the film versions is the Jeff Lynne version of the concert for George, a.k.a. a slicker, smoother version without an ounce of fat on it. For example, the CD version of the album has several changes. Uh, The majority of the speeches are removed entirely. There's no introduction by Clapton or Ravi Shankar. There's no bigness speech by Michael Palin. And any of the speeches that do stay in are also cut to some degree as well. Uh, Also absent are the majority of the introductions and applause of new acts taken to the stage as well. The only bits of speech we do get are examples of it directly benefiting the kind of positive vibe of the album, such as the introduction of both of the Beatles and their respective short speeches. Obviously, Jeff Lynne is a big Beatle boy and was always going to include these two but they also contain the biggest screams of the night, objectively, which means they are a must-include on any live album. Sadly, there are also a few performances cut for time. Most notably, the entirety of the Monty Python comedy interlude is not on the CD, which, that, that, that was so instrumental to the evening. It, it doesn't make sense, but if, if something's got to go, I guess... The other tragedy about the CD version is that it does not contain Horse to Water at all. Yes, Sam Brown and Jules Holland, seemingly for time and seemingly because they were the least famous and least connected uh, and had the least famous song to play, uh, were the ones that got the boot, which is a shame really because it's one of the highlights of the evening. But again, it's it's one of those corporate, if something's got to go, I see why they made that choice. When it comes to the LP version of the album, the vinyl version, we almost immediately concede that it is the more comprehensive and thus superior, in my eyes, audio-only issue of the concert for George, as both Horse to the Water and all of the Monty Python stuff is put back in. Although there is one slight difference in that the voice that introduces them, you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's Monty Python, is completely different than the one used in the film for some reason. No idea why. Maybe because they weren't recording that guy live that night on a on, on a separate track. Who knows? But that's the only real difference with the LP. Um, also, the LP, like that, you know, that version of Figure of Eight, where by, by, uh, by Paul, obviously, where it's got an etching on one of the sides. Well, I believe with the LP version of the Concert of Georgia, it's a triple disc, and on the eighth side is a very fancy. Indian-esque etching, and uh, I just thought that was very interesting and should be included. So yeah, whilst I'd like to say that the album and the films are equally valid ways of experiencing the concert for George, um, you know, the the CD and the LP really don't cut it in the same way. So much of the concert for George are the visuals, like the smiles on the faces, seeing the crowd, seeing them perform that there is something so magical about that whole package together. And with the album and the CD, you know, I really don't... We're going to see this a lot in some of the reviews later. I do agree with them that I, I couldn't imagine people like taking the LP out and playing this all that often or taking the, the uh, CD out. And for me, 
the ultimate way to experience the concept for George, if I'm only going to be listening to it, is through streaming. I just want that quick instant hit of the concept for George, maybe a specific song in that massive track list. And if I'm not going to be watching it on, on YouTube, then streaming is just the best way to experience it. And thankfully on streaming, it's the LP version, it's the most comprehensive one. So if, you, if you're going to just listen to it, folks, just get your phone out. Also quickly, let's just talk about the album cover, shall we? It features the iconic Beatles-era photo of George playing his guitar with a kind of purple colour scheme. The photo comes from a gig that the Fabs did in the Netherlands in 1964, and it was taken during George's performance of Roll Over Beethoven, a song that was not performed during the concert. Uh, Ringo does Honey Don't instead. But it was nice to kind of have Roll Over Beethoven be referenced here. And... I'm not going to lie, I thought I would have been annoyed that they used a Beatle-era photo of George when most of the songs and most of the mu musicians on stage were not from that era. But, oh my god, isn't that just the most perfect picture of him ever? Yes, it proves that no matter what these men do, no, no matter what new music they put out or amazing things they do after the Beatles, when you die, you're still a Beatle. And... When he looks as especially angelic and wide-eyed and young and innocent and unblemished as that, then again, you've just got to go with it. It makes sense. It's pleasing to the eye. And despite being a shameless uh, Beatle plug, it's still super classy in its own way. And just before we conclude, I thought we would do a little section on the album sales, like the way we just did the, uh, the film chart performances. And thankfully, uh, we have that Jeff Lynn website once again at hand. And I've had access to a more detailed piece of chart information than I've ever been accustomed to, really. First of all, right off the bat, starting off, one has to directly point out that in terms of financial success and sales and uh, impact, the Concert for George album has been far more the resounding success Maybe not all at once, you know, not a smash hit, but it has slowly sold a certain number of copies over an extended period of time with multiple reissues and re-releases that always seem to sell out and fetch for, you know, exorbitant prices on eBay, leading the album to actually be certified by the RIAA as 10 times platinum for sales over a million copies. Hey, that's a pretty... Big chunk of change there, folks, especially considering how much of those sales would also have been generated via the vinyl and other lucrative box set collections. Like I said, it sold a lot, but not in a burst, which did result in rather meagre chart performances. Uh, the Concert for George, the album, entered the Billboard Top 200 on the 6th of December 2003, and it started strongish at 97. Uh, week two, it went down to 166, then back up to 139 on week three, 176 on week four, 175, week five, 147, week six, and then it completely got pushed out after that. It also entered the top 25 soundtrack album charts on the 6th of December 2003, and it fared much better with a very healthy number six in its first week. And it stayed in the top ten charts 
on weeks three and six as well, before then clinging on to the bottom of the chart in the mid-twenties until week 17. It entered the Billboard Top Music Video Charts, uh, the Top 40, whatever that is, again, December 6, 2003, and I'm not sure what this means or what it measures exact, exactly, whether it, it's like the whole movie's one music video or whether there were music videos of the concert that were going around at that time or whether it goes against other concert films or other similar things, whatever, but... All you need to know is it debuted, again, at number six, very, very good, before reaching a peak of uh, number four on January 10th, 2004. And finally, it entered the Billboard Top Internet Album Sales on January 10th, 2004, and stayed there for about a week at number 25. Riveting figures there, I know. And there we are, folks. We are halfway through the episode now. And so now it's time for us to take a little break while we crack on with this week's Housekeeping. So what do we have in terms for news today, everyone? Absolutely nothing. So we're just going to quickly cover a story that I think I missed, which is Paul and Ringo's uh, future collab with Dolly Parton. And we know Paul and Ringo have done something with the Rolling Stones recently, so it only makes sense that they do something with Dolly Parton as well. They are going to reunite on her album. I don't know whether it's going to be on the same song, because all we know is that she's mentioned that she's sung with Paul on her new album. So either Ringo's doing the drums on that track, or he's appearing on another possibly more country-orientated track. We don't know. But at least what we do know is that the song that her and Paul are going to be covering is Let It Be. So whenever Dolly Parton has a new album coming out, we'll keep our ears to the ground and I'll update you when it's out. It should be really fun. I love Dolly Parton. A few of her songs always remain in my most played on Spotify. You know, the hits. I don't know her deep catalogue very well, but I do have a soft spot for her. And I do like that she's kind of been... Uh, not just vindicated but glorified in the media in the last sort of 30 years or so after a kind of rough and bumpy start you know we all love Dolly don't we don't we folks anyway that's literally it for the news so let's just have a nice quick housekeeping segment folks to get in contact with the show drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com follow us on our twitter page for daily updates which is at mccartneypod for Paul or nothing written content check out the blog which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com Check us on our socials, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the one place where you can check out all episodes of Mac It In Your Attic, our sister show as well. If you want to help out the show right now in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please just give us some form of interaction, a like, a thumbs up, a share, some stars, uh, a retweet, put us in a comment section, mention us to a friend in real life or on the internet, whatever if you can just interact with the show in some way it gives us a great boost in the gloriously uh, mysterious algorithms you know the deal folks if you could just give us a like or a thumbs up that'd be great and finally folks if you want to help out the show directly if you want to see us grow if you want to help keep the lights running help keep me in vinyl then please become a wonderful member of our patreon family it's not just a gimme it's not just a gofundme when you become a Patreon patron here with Paul or Nothing, you get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get a week's early access to episodes of Macca in your attic. You get access to the video feed 
Uh, that's like unedited, uncut episodes of Macca in Your Attic with visuals. And the ones with Dylan that are going to be parts two and three of this series have been up for like weeks, possibly even months now. So you really do get an insight into what's coming up on the podcast. You also get access to lost and deleted and... Uh, buried episodes of Paul or Nothing here, all the scripts I do for the show as well, as a bonus Patreon vlog series, an exclusive vlog series, I've done like 20 of them now, there's one coming out very soon, and it's just bonus Paul or Nothing content that you won't be able to get anywhere else. So if you like the podcast, if you think what I'm doing here is worth a couple of bucks, a cup of coffee a month. You know, obviously we don't do ads and stuff like that. So if you like, th- if you like the show, hey, check out check out the Patreon. It's definitely worth your while. And speaking of Patreon, we cannot proceed any further without thanking our wonderful Patreon family, the people that make this podcast possible. People like Maggie Barnes, Mr. PJ Bellchamber, Stephen Lanham, Isabella Diaz, Stephanie Bradley, Louise Overberg, John Carp. Brian Brigman, Annie McNeil, Percy Thrington, David Staberski, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Roderick Harper, Chris Atkinson, Bowie or Bowie, Richard Biddington, Teresa Brader, the editor, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Lou DiLonardo, Robert A. Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy, and my man, Matt Phillips. Right, everyone, let's just get right back to the show. Okay, so we've talked about everything we need to know about the concert for George, all of the background and the history, that kind of thing. And so since this is a show of so many big names and because the roster is so important to the format of the show and why it's so special, I thought it would be best for us to turn the clock back a little bit and focus on the people who made the concert for George happen, the participants, the key players, the musicians, that kind of thing. And yeah, we are going to be starting off with the bigger names first and then kind of work our way down to some of the less household ones, shall we say. Normally I would have done this segment before talking about the like releases and the sales, but the story of the concert is like so short and this segment is so long that it really would have interrupted the flow of the story. And now we can you know, focus on these musicians themselves because we know all the basics. However, as we know, this is a long performance. And so how many people do you need to fill up two and a half hours? How many people would Danny and Olivia have to wrangle into this project? And more importantly, how difficult would that be? Well, considering a lot of George's closest friends were esteemed rock giants in their own right, it isn't a stretch to understand how relatively easy this show must have been put together when compared to other shows of this scale. Like, yeah, I'm sure that some of the other aspects must have been a chore, like the lighting and the catering and the licensing. But George touched so many lives and meant a lot to so many people that the only difficulty would have been who they wouldn't have been able to include. One can only easily imagine that it must have gotten to the point whereby they were having to turn down artists who wanted to take part. And it's this exact combination of access to top quality artists as well as top quality control that results in the concert for George arguably having one of the greatest lineups ever put to a bill. No, seriously, I challenge anyone to find me a better one. And so, with this 
huge roster being so close to George and knowing how much this concert meant to them, I felt like we had to do this properly with a certain level of detail. So we'll go through all of these people, who they were, if you don't know, and what they did with George, most importantly, you know, working and personal. This part was highly educational for me, and so I can only hope the same can be said for all of you listening. Also, just as an aside, in doing the prep for this episode, I found out that there's never been an official list of who actually played what in regards to All Things Must Pass, which is literally one of the most annoying things ever. Anyway, let us begin. Starting off, we have one of George's most frequent post-Beatle collaborators and an iconic love rival of his. It is the man himself, Eric Clapton. Yes, folks, Eric Clapton of the Yardbirds, Derek and the Dominoes, Blind Faith, Bonnie and Delaney, and Cream fame. Oh, and also of solo Eric Clapton fame. He is an iconic blues and rock guitarist and composer of many of the classic modern rock standards. He was also a very close friend of George Harrison's indeed. George was with Eric when he wrote Here Comes the Sun. George wrote Savoy Truffle about Eric's notorious sweet tooth. And it was George who got Eric his place on the Wild My Guitar Gently Weeps lead guitar spot. Of course, the more salacious and interesting part of the story of their dynamic is the fact that George Harrison would go on to introduce Eric to Eric's future wife, whilst she was currently then George's wife. And yeah, the story goes that George was this yogi-like man of peace about it and that he simply gave her up for Eric. But then there's the other story where George and Eric had this epic hours-long guitar duel with Eric winning fair and square. Either way, uh, it's safe to say that they go way back as a pair. In terms of collaborations between the two, George co-wrote Badge, one of Cream's most recognisable songs. The duo toured with Bonnie and Delaney and Friends in 1969, which was the tour where George got a lot of confidence as an instrumentalist and as a solo player. Clapton played on Billy Preston's 1969 album, That's the Way God Planned It, which Harrison was producing at the time. They also worked on Preston's next album, the 1970s effort Encouraging Words. George also appeared on electric guitar on the Blind Faith song Exchange and Mart. However, it wasn't included on the final album and was only released as a bonus track on the 1986 reissue of the same album. Eric, of course, though, was part of the main core of artists who worked on All Things Must Pass, with his songs' appearances speculated to be as vast and diverse as My Sweet Lord, I'd Have You Any Time, Wah Wah, Let It Down, What Is Life, Beware of darkness, awaiting on you all. All things must pass. I dig love. Isn't it a pity version two? Hear me, Lord. I remember Jeep. Thanks for the pepperoni. And plug me in. Eric was also one of the artists that appeared at the concert for Bangladesh. They played While My Guitar Gently Weeps and Here Comes the Sun as a pair at the Prince's Trust Gala in 1987. Eric played the intro for Love Comes to Everyone from George's self-titled 1979 album. 
Eric also played electric guitar on George's Cloud Nine album, specifically the songs Cloud Nine, That's What It Takes, Devil's Radio, and Wreck of the Hesperus. George also appeared on Clapton's album Journeyman in 1989, and Eric played lead guitar and possibly arranged some of the songs for George's 1991 tour of Japan. Yeah, again, they go way back. Of course, Eric is the stalwart figure here, and his presence really is felt across the whole show. In his role as musical director slash master of ceremonies, not only does Clapton decide who plays what and where, but he also arranges the majority of the numbers, taking a lot of inspiration from that Japanese tour. Whether you like him or not, whether you like his music or not, though, you can't take away from the fact that his respect and reverence towards the show and the effort he put in is incalculable. Like, I'm not saying this is Eric's show, but it it couldn't have happened without him. Also, as a performer, Clapton is remarkably humble across the show and rarely steals the spotlight away from the other players. Yes, he does intro the whole show and does most of the introductions and even has a solo in Arpan when none of the other Western musicians do. And yet, he does so in utter respect for George and for the show. Under his guiding hand, the concert for George is a well-oiled machine and his musicianship on the album is as top-notch as you'd expect from Clapton in this era. In the show, Eric plays acoustic guitar and electric guitar. Next up, we have Tom Petty, as in Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Again, another giant of rock and roll, and even two names in. This guest list is starting to get pretty crazy, right? Of course, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were a giant band, beloved by many, and he's another artist that would not be where he is and wouldn't have all of his hits without that Beatle influence. Now, I've always wondered about how George and Tom Petty ever met, considering that Petty was seven years younger than the youngest Beatle. And apparently the two of them first bumped into each other in 74, when Petty worked at Leon Russell's, where Petty was helping out around the house. Uh, When speaking of the incident, Petty said, It's a scary thing meeting Beatles, but George was so nice to me and included me in everything. Then our paths didn't cross again until years later. This was probably around 85 or 86, when the Heartbreakers were touring England with Bob Dylan. George came one night to see us in Birmingham. Bob was busy with something, and so we wound up just talking. I reminded him that we'd met, and there was some kind of weird click. It felt like we'd known each other all our lives, in a very personal way. We wound up just hanging out a lot. I have a great photo somewhere. It was my birthday, and George had bought a little cake to my dressing room. Oddly enough, though, on that night when George met Tom in Birmingham, there was a random freak hurricane that hit England at that time, as Petty details here. We went back to the hotel, and a hurricane hit the middle of London that same night. They didn't even predict it, but it ripped huge oaks out of the ground. I got up the next day and thought, holy cow, this is something, and I always thought that hurricane had something to do with something. My life was different after that. Man, imagine becoming friends with a beetle, and then literally the world starts tearing itself asunder. You know, I understand why he'd see that as a sign. But yeah, I think the deal was finally sealed when they bumped into each other again randomly 
at a restaurant and George calls Tom Petty over to his table and he's like, oh, I've just asked Jeff Lynne for your phone number and the rest is history from that point because uh, they were friends until the end, 100%. And they actually had a lot more collaborative efforts than I thought. Uh, George first appeared on backing guitar and vocals on the song I Went Back Down on Petty's 1989 album Full Moon Fever. The same year, Petty co-wrote a solo George song called Cheer Down, which was George's contribution to the Lethal Weapon 2 soundtrack of all things. Then, George helped Petty get Free Fall in release as a single after Petty's current record company rejected it as a single. Oh, and then there was a little side project called The Travelling Wilburys. The cool thing about Petty in this concert is that his voice sounds so little like George's. I mean, you know, take Handle With Care, for instance. In that track, Petty's grizzled voice is paired with Bob Dylan's to directly contrast with George and Jeff's lighter and higher vocals. And in place of a hyper-realistic take whenever he's on stage, you instead get a wholly unique and far more fascinating one. You know, there are loads of faithful covers on this album, in this film, in this show. But when Petty comes on stage, like it's just such a refreshing contrast. Uh... And whilst not being super accurate, he still somehow manages to capture the feeling and spirit of George in a way that only a, a close friend, Trudy, could. Then we'll round out the rest of the Wilburys on this playbill, as next up we have none other than Jeff Flaming Pie Lynn. It actually hasn't been that long since we did a quick summary of this gent, but just a recap of our recap. Jeff was the founding and principal member of ELO, a.k.a. the Electronic Light Orchestra, a.k.a. the guys who did Mr. Blue Sky and Don't Bring Me Down and loads of hits and a lot of success with them. He did the Fleming Pie album with Paul. He did the Beatles anthology sessions. And he's probably collaborated with everyone who is on the bill for the concert for George at some point. Lynn was widely known to have been a very close friend of George's, though, and if you watch the ELO Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in 2017, you can hear a speech that Danny Harrison gives where he refers to Jeff as being one of his father's dear friends. But how long have they actually known each other? Well, the specific date isn't posted, but it's slightly between 85 and 86. Lynn explains how they met here. We were just having dinner, Dave Edmondson and myself, and we just finished the dinner, and we'd walked our separate ways down the street, and suddenly he shouted back, though we'd just been to dinner for the last three hours. By the way, George Harrison asked me to ask you if you'd like to work with him on his new album, by the way. And then he laughs, because, of course, how could you not laugh in that situation if George Harrison wants to work with you on an album? You say yes! Anyway, Jeff and George ended up going on a holiday to Australia with the aim of seeing a Grand Prix race. And with George being a regular face at those events, it meant that this story certainly checks out. And Jeff probably had a blast of a time being the, the you know with the real VIPs. Though it was clearly not all fun and games, as they did actually do a bit of strumming together, resulting in quite a few songs that would appear on the Cloud Nine album that Lynn would produce for George, but more on that in a moment. It seems, though, that that encounter really was the start for something special, 
as it ended up providing Lynn with other opportunities that would bear great fruit. He said, We really... Sorry. We really hit it off well. Then Tom Petty had heard that George's album had, I'd just produced, and he loved it. He actually came over to me one day and said, Do you fancy doing some things with me? It's because of that album with George, yes, that I got asked by a lot of people to do work with them. Speaking of getting work out of his relationship with George, ironically, Lynn's final project with George would be without him, as Jeff Lynn would also be the producer of The Concert for George. Now, regarding the rest of their extensive collaborational history, let's go through it. In 1986, the two of them appeared at the Birmingham Heartfelt Charity Concert, showing up as the finale and joining many other musicians in a rendition of Johnny B. Good. He then remixed a previously released song of Harrison's, That's the Way It Goes. He also produced two new Harrison songs, Zigzag and The Hottest Gang in Town, which would be released in 88 and in 1992. Then, in 1987, Lynn went on to produce George's big comeback album, the aforementioned Cloud Nine, which yielded the third highest-selling single of the year, which was Got My Mind Set On You, as well as the other top 30 single, When We Was Fab. Also, with Jeff Lynne being Jeff Lynne, he played the majority of the instruments on the album, be it bass, acoustic, electric guitars, keyboards, synth, or backing vocals. Of course, being the man whose band conceptually picked up where the Beatles left off with the Magical Mystery Tour and being the big Beatle fanboy that he was, Lynn immediately worked well with Harrison and their music would be intertwined evermore. George was always the first to point out that it was ironic with him to work with Jeff Lynne, you know, because ELO were like the Beatles, Though, rather infamously amongst fans, the two were so in sync in these sessions that it's literally still up for debate as to who actually wrote what on the final album. Then, the two of them would go on to form the Travelling Wilburys the next year. Then in 89, Lynn produced Cheer Down, the song that Harrison co-wrote with Tom Petty that we just mentioned. Of course, then Jeff Lynne was an instrumental player in terms of getting George to take part in the Beatles anthology project, with Lynn being the primary producer behind the buttons and giving George more of a say in the studio. And finally, Jeff Lynne would also go on to produce George's final album, Brainwashed, which was released posthumously. Lynn, in conjunction with George's son Danny, actually had to finish the album after George's death, which only goes to show how close they were. And it's this closeness between Lynn and George, especially in a recording context, because, you know, like George and Eric are more like peers, where, like, you know, they were working together, whereas Lynn worked on a George album. You know, he was there in the thick of it. And because of that, you know, no one's able to capture the musical style, cadence, and rhythm better, better than Jeff Lynn. You know, no one d does that. Lynn is the de facto accurate vocal performer, especially when combined with his natural singing voice and timbre. Now, just before we move on to the next person, I do just want to touch on the fact that, you know, look, Jeff Lynne was the producer for the concert for George. This meant that, along with Clapton as Master of Ceremonies, 
you know, Lynn was another instrumental part because he'd be mastering the ceremonies. So even though Eric would be like the big guy on the night, Lynn was kind of the guy who made sure that the product would be fit for service after everything was over. And I imagine Lynn was much deeper in the process of getting everything together and arranging the songs than is let on. And so because of that, I know that with Jeff Lynn being the big voice that he is and Eric being the big voice that he is, and then you've got Olivia and Danny and the other production elements, all of that together meant that there was no one person dictating what the concert for George was. It was up to everyone to do their best for George, and that's how it turned out. Though, now that I've said that, I do realise that there's probably loads of information about this in one of those very expensive special edition box sets of the concert for George that include a very big book on the topic, and they go on eBay right now for anywhere between £800 and £1,000. Pressing on to the next artist now, and we have the first name on this list that I did not recognise when I first saw this concert film all those years ago, and this man's name is Joe Brown. Now, at this point, the only Joe Brown I'd ever heard of was in the line, Don't judge them, Joe Brown, in the song On Sight by Kanye West, and that's a reference to Judge Joe Brown, an American reality TV judge, and not the Joe Brown that we're talking about here, who is a performer who's been on the stage doing rock and roll, doing music, since before the Beatles were even a hit. And whilst he's never achieved mainstream cultural success, he is beloved by the music industry and is known as a real musician's musician. In terms of his friendship with George, Joe Brown was one of the ukulele guys, you know, one of those guys that George would bring out five or six ukuleles to a dinner table with and then they'd just jam together. Now, I actually didn't know a lot about Joe Brown because I don't think he features much, if at all, in the Living in the Material World documentary. But if you need to know how close they were, Harrison was actually Joe Brown's best man at his second wedding in 2000. So, yeah, definitely close. And like so many others on this list, it was actually George who was the fan of Joe's. He cemented this position after he sang Joe's big hit, Pictures of You, on the Beatles' first radio broadcast. And naturally, the, the two became close friends ever since. Brown gives a quote here that seems very reminiscent of the other friend of George's stories that we all hear. He says, When I moved to Henley-on-Thames, near where George lived, he phoned me up and said, I hear you're my new neighbour. You'd better bring your guitar around. About two or three times a week, we would sit around and play ukuleles or guitars. He was a fantastic man and a great man, and I miss him very much. Regarding their official work together, Joe Brown appeared on George's 1982 album, Gone Troppo, playing the mandolin on the track Mystical One, and he also played the acoustic guitar on the song Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea from George's final album, Brainwashed. Without spoiling too much, folks, let's just say that Joe Brown and his band are easily one of the highlights of the concert for George. Again, I didn't know who he was, but my God, did he ever leave an impression on me with his performance. Out of all the players, Brown is clearly the most at home on stage and his deft skill and his craft is as instantly apparent as it is seemingly effortless.
Next up, and we have the only person of colour in this non-Indian part of the show to break up the mass of middle-aged white dudes, and his name is Billy Preston, and he'll be playing a whole lot of piano. Billy and George had first met in Hamburg during the pre-Beatles days and had remained friendly before finally collaborating on the Beatles album Let It Be. And that's another one of those and the rest was history moments. I'm sure you've all heard Billy, like Clapton, is one of those few people who worked with George as a Beatle and as a solo act. But importantly, unlike Clapton, he was actually accredited on the tracks that he did, you know, as a separate entity. On the album Let It Be and the singles, it's directly advertised as The Beatles and Billy Preston, which is oh so fucking cool. But what other work did they do together after the split? Well, as we touched on earlier, George produced two of Billy's albums whilst he was signed onto the Apple label, those being That's The Way God Planned It and Encouraging Words the latter of which is widely regarded to be the best non-Beatle album released on the Apple label. Preston also appeared on piano as a core member of the All Things Must Pass Sessions group. He features on My Sweet Lord, Wah Wah, Isn't It a Pity, If Not For You, Behind That Locked Door, The Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp, I Dig Love, The Art of Dying, Hear Me Lord, and I Remember Jeep. Now, he didn't work with George as much after All Things Must Pass, but he does appear on Dark Horse, Extra Texture, 33 and a Third, and Gone Troppo. So it's not like they fell out of touch or anything. Of course, seeing Billy at this show is one of the highlights of the entire night for me personally. Why? Well, again, I touch on this in the live episodes, but... Like a lot of people out there, I really don't know much about what Billy got up to after The Beatles and George, and you certainly don't see him much in the media here in the UK. So when you see his face on screen after all this time, especially in the circumstances of the occasion, it's hard not to get a little nostalgic and teary-eyed. Oh, and he rocks the house with his two songs, which isn't surprising to anyone I know. Then we have another name that prompted me to do a quick Google check before I could talk about them at any length. That man's name is Gary Brooker, and he was a staple session pianist and keyboards player throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s. Since this is a Paul McCartney show, I would be remiss not to mention that Brooker is probably best known as both the lead vocalist and lead keyboard player on Procol Harum's Whiter Shade of Pale, which was the song that was playing when Paul first met Linda in the Bag of Nails Club. But what's his connection with George, Sam? Well, for the All Things Must Pass sessions, he played second fiddle slash second piano to Billy Preston by also playing piano. There is some debate as to what songs he actually appears on, as the sources differ, but he could have played on Let It Down, The Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp, My Sweet Lord, and Wah Wah. Then, after that, he played Synthesizer on the track Writings on the Wall from Somewhere in England, as well as on the track Unknown Delights from Gone Troppo. In regards to his performance in the concert, Brooker wows with a one-and-done run-and-gun routine. He comes in with this white-hot rendition of Old Brown Shoe, nails it, and then calmly and with great humility 
just does piano for the rest of the gig, or he just goes. I I don't know. You certainly don't see him after this. He doesn't hog the screen or anything, and he just makes you wish there was more of him, which is very showman-like indeed. Then we come to the first half of the one and only duo performance during this performance, and his name is Jules Holland. He was the keyboardist for the UK band Squeeze for five years, aka their first lineup. However, you will likely know him as Jules the Interviewer for the Beatles Anthology series. However, however, I know him best as the television presenter who plays the piano a lot. His shows, Later with Jules Holland, and his New Year's special, Jules Holland Annual Hootenanny, have been household names, at least in my house, since I was a kid, and they are largely seen as one of the best ways to quote-unquote watch live music on television in the modern era in the UK. Like, there really isn't much else you've got to pick from. The only risk for any artist, though, that he has on as a guest is that he is awfully apt to add some boogie-woogie piano to your performance at the drop of a hat. And, yeah, I really don't know how he and George met, but I imagine a lot of people simply meet through the business. And so there isn't a great yarn about how their relationship came to be. And what's worse is they didn't even get together on a record until the very end of George's life, with Holland playing piano on the song Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea from George's final album, Brainwashed. In return, George upped the ante and gave Jules his last ever recorded solo performance. Yeah, seriously. His last ever one, ever, ever, ever. The song was called Horse to Water, a.k.a. the song that he plays in the show. And the song was written by both George and Danny. The audio sent to Jules didn't feature any of his guitar, sadly, as he was too weak to play and so could only muster up a vocal performance. The song ended up on the 2001 album by, and I quote, Jules Holland and his Rhythm and Blues Orchestra and Friends, with the album being called Small World Big Band, which has a really cool version of Revolution by the Stereophonics on it, actually. And I think we should actually listen to the final ever vocal performance of George Harrison. I think that'd be really interesting, actually. Let's have a listen. Yeah. 
in terms of the actual concert for George, we only really see Jules Holland in any detail during the performance of Horse to Water. And considering the arrangement of the track, it hardly gives him any moments to stand out. There's not like a great like great piano solo or anything. Meaning I really don't have all that much to say about his individual performance. I don't think he even stays on stage all that much either. Uh, again, like Gary Brooker, I'm willing to be proven wrong on that front, but again, he's one of those blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameos compared to everyone else in this show. Speaking of which, uh, after hearing us talk about the first highlighted artist on Horse to Water, we should now talk about the second one, which is the vocalist Sam Brown. She's a fairly successful solo vocalist and has released several albums under her own name from 1988 to 2008. And whilst being a workhorse in her own right, she's also the frequent collaborator and session vocalist for Jules Holland. She was another person who I really hadn't heard of before researching this show, shock horror, and I was surprised to find out that the only connection between her and George was the fact that she did some backing vocals on the title track of Brainwashed. She is also credited as the vocalist on the Small World Big Band version of Horse to Water, as well so yeah they she did perform with him a bit but she really did get in there right at the end in terms of being someone qualified to appear at a concert for george that's that's that, that's a a real last minute submission but good honor good honor though despite that lengthy resume for anyone keeping track of surnames yes she does indeed share the surname with joe brown and that's because she is his daughter we don't want to get bogged down with talking about Hollywood nepotism or anything like that. I mean, we've already done a whole episode on the hot button issue of AI. We don't want to become too much like TMZ here at Paul or nothing. But it's easy to see how Sam Brown would have ended up with her own solo spot in this set. And in all fairness, she does only come on for the one song, a totally appropriate song, absolutely crushes it. And then, again, just humbly walks off stage, never to be seen again. Good stuff. Then, folks, we come to another of the bigger names of the evening. And the first of George's original colleagues to grace the stage. Who, of course, is Mr Ringo Starr. If you need me to explain how they got together, 
this is really the wrong source to get that info from. Go to one of the other awesome Beatle podcasts about the formation of the Beatles. But let's just say that they've known each other since 1962 and worked together in a little band project until around 1970. However, that is not where their working relationship ended. Ringo was a major player on George's iconic debut, All Things Must Pass, with him featuring on the drums for the tracks My Sweet Lord, Wawa, Isn't It a Pity, Versions 1 and 2, Beware of Darkness, All Things Must Pass, and I Dig Love, as well as doing the tambourine on If Not For You. George then returned the favour by helping Ringo write Photograph for the Ringo album, as well as playing the guitar on several songs for those sessions, including the track Lennon Penned, I'm the Greatest. Then, swapping back, Ringo drummed on several tracks for the next two George albums, Living in the Material World and Dark Horse. Then, George went back and did the classic Ringo collaboration, which is just to write a song for him, which is I'll Still Love You for Ringo's Rotogravure in 1976. In 1981, George would write and produce Rack My Brain for Ringo's Stop and Spell the Roses, and Ringo would, in kind, do the drumming on All Those Years Ago, a song from George's Somewhere in England. Both of those tracks would indeed chart. Then Ringo did some drumming and backing vocals on the Beatle-based Cloud Nine single When We Was Fab, and then, after the anthology project was over, George would play the slide guitar on the track's King of Broken Hearts, and I'll Be Fine Anywhere for Ringo's 1998, not that bad actually when you think about it, album, Vertical Man. When talking about Ringo's individual contributions to the show, I gotta be honest, I think that Ringo is at his best in this concert as one of the drummers more than one of the singers. Yes, I know this is all trite and drawn out and it's all been said and done before, and I know you all love Ringo, and Dylan certainly tries to change my mind in, in the next couple of episodes, but nothing's ever going to make me think that Ringo is much of a stage performer and singer outside of the context of The Beatles. Yeah, the Ringo songs are certainly part of the emotional core of this album, and I certainly feel something when he comes on stage for the first time. Of course, I do. I'm not a heartless monster or anything like that. And they're fun songs for what they are. But if I had to, if I had to skip over any section of the album, it probably would be the Ringo bit. Sorry. Then, finally, the final finalist, uh, in terms of big names, for George's band, was one of the people that has always been posited as having him cause the most grief back in the past. Yes, everyone, being that this is a supposedly Paul McCartney-based podcast, we are finally going to start addressing the fact that Paul McCartney was indeed part of this concert. I mean, how could he not be? They loved each other. And even if George didn't like the perception, he was Paul's de facto baby brother. And of course, Paul would want to pay tribute to him. And besides, they had genuinely reconnected through the anthology project in those final years. And they had likely seen each other more than they had across the entire 70s and 80s combined. Now, of course, one doesn't need to detail the career that George and Paul enjoyed together between 59 and 70, as it's widely and extensively covered, again, but the story really does kind of end there between the two of them, at least professionally. Like, there are loads of collabs between Paul and Ringo, Ringo and George, 
Ringo and John, even a couple between George and John. But in terms of choosing my favourite McCartney-Harrison post-Beatle collaborations, um, I'm hardly spoiled by too much choice. Now, I am not joking here, folks, but I literally could not find one thing they had done together outside of the anthology or other Beatles stuff. I remember that George came down to Air Studios during the Tug of War sessions. Um, maybe like he was going to do the solo on Wanderlust or something, but nothing came of that either. It's funny that, you know, McCartney is by far the person who played with George the least over the years, and yet he's arguably the biggest name on the bill of his tribute concert. I'm sure that George would find that funny. I mean, even the very notion of doing a tribute for George is like... Again, would George want a tribute? And B, would he want Paul to be there? Again, it's philosophically a very interesting question, one that Paul hasn't addressed in the same honesty that, say, Eric has. But I don't think Paul ever would. And it really doesn't matter because Paul approaches this show with the same reverence and respect and communal spirit as everyone else on the bill and... I'm absolutely smitten with what he does with the material. One of the songs he does here would actually become a part of his main set list forever. Even the arrangement, the way he does it, you know. This is this is an important McCartney gig. It's seminal in some ways. And as a McCartney fan, when you see him come on stage, you, you just get the biggest beaming smile across your face because you know he's going to rock out, and he does. But yeah. Paul is here. It's a big part of the show, and it it is essential watching for any McCartney fan. You really should be familiar with it. And, you know, of course, we're going to get to his songs, and we'll talk about them in far more detail with Dylan. But like Joe Brown, all I'll say for now is that Paul's performances here are objectively fantastic, and anyone who has a contrary opinion is either lying or a fool on the hill. And now that we've covered all of the bigger names on this show, well, I, I say bigger, many of these names that we're going to talk about are big in their own right, but yeah, we're going to eschew all of the household names now amongst the general public and, you know, actually talk about the people who might not even be included on the liner notes for the album, let alone be advertised on a poster or on the back of a DVD or anything like that. Yes, folks, it is now time for us to pay tribute to the rest of the musicians that made the concert for George possible, and they are numerous indeed, though I will not be covering the Indian musicians as I do so in the first part of the next episode. Now, annoyingly, the liner notes, or the official liner notes for the concert, only really point out the more notable names for each performance, like the lead single or a change of band, and this does make sense in the sense that there's a lot of backing band to contend with, but it does mean that a whole lot of players never get their name in the spotlight. So I'm going to quickly run through them now. That way, if there's ever a performance where no bass player is listed or you can clearly hear three rhythm guitars, then you can just refer to this list instead because it happens a lot. Also, just to cover my bases, Unless specified otherwise, all of these players have probably appeared on a Ringo album as well at some point. 
Right, I think we will now begin with the instrument that George wrote most of his iconic songs on, except for that weird white album period anyway. Here are the guitarists of the concert. Our first one is Andy Fairweather Lowe, and I know this will come as a shock to many of you, but I'd never heard of him. I know he was probably great, but them's the breaks. And like many of the players on this list, Andy has a long-standing relationship with musical director Eric Clapton and is likely one of what I'm going to refer to for the rest of this series as Eric's people. You know, there are George people, there are Jeff Lynne people, and there are Eric people. There's a lot of uh, cross-pollination with those categories, I know, but that mostly makes up the main people at this show. And Andy Fairweather Lowe is definitely one of them. They had worked on and off in the past through the 70s, but since 83, he began touring with Clapton full-time and becoming a frequent studio guitarist. Uh, I think he's on every one of Eric's albums up to this point, uh, including the now iconic Unplugged albums, and their relationship culminated in him being chosen, likely by Clapton, to play guitar and do some backing vocals for George's 1991 Japanese tour. Now, I could just be being a cynic there. Maybe George and Andy Fairweather Lowe got really close on that tour and they were really good friends. Maybe they jammed outside of the official studio context. I don't know. That's going to come up a lot with these smaller names. But I would love to be proven wrong there. On to our second guitarist now, whose name is Albert Lee. Again, never heard of the chap, but apparently he is best known as a quintessential guitarist guitarist who has been around since the time of the Beatles. Keeping in theme, Lee is another of Eric's people, kinda, where he's been a part of the general rock and roll establishment for years, but has worked with Clapton a lot having appeared as a guitarist and vocalist on the live album Just One Night, as well as studio albums Another Ticket, Money and Cigarettes, and Behind the Sun. Though I did find one article that does posit the idea of Harrison and Albert Lee being friends, quite close actually, with Lee saying, I never played with him on stage, but we jammed in hotel rooms and at Eric's house. We got on well, and we were kindred spirits in a lot of ways. So I guess Lee is an example of someone who is on this bill for both being an Eric person as well as someone who just kind of ended up being friends with George on the side a bit. Uh, again, kind of a, a looser connection compared to some people, but still a worthy addition nonetheless. Kind of. <laughs> uh, anyway, next up we have Mark Mann on the electric guitar. And I actually first read his name in the liner notes being credited as additional music editing and additional music mixing rather than being a musician. So to find out he was in the show is actually pretty cool. And the position of music editing and music mixing shouldn't be too much of a shock. As if you remember back to the episode where we covered the Beatles anthology, I think it was Flaming Pie Part 1... This man, Mark Mann, is the bloke who Jeff Lynne went to when Yoko presented him with the John Lennon Rough Work demo tapes. Like, apparently Mann cleaned up the tapes and allowed them to become the songs we know today. So he is so important in the Beatles story and getting George involved in those sessions, you know. It, it's all very serendipitous, but he's definitely still one of Jeff's people, I'd say. 
more than one of George's. Anyway, in terms of Markman's direct work with George, he played the keyboards on Pisces Fish from Brainwashed, as well as doing some string arrangements of the songs Rising Sun and Marwa Blues from the same album. He was also part of the band during George's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was meant to be on joint lead guitar, but that was the same gig where Prince rocked up out of nowhere, wowed everyone, and completely dominated the moment forever. Ooh, shall we have that as the closing song for the episode? Yeah, I think we will. I think we will. And for our final guitarist, we have Danny Harrison. Danny Harrison is George Harrison's son. Boom! How's that for well-detailed research, eh, folks? You won't get a scoop like that anywhere else. I'll tell you that for free. Danny has probably been hanging around his dad in the studio since he was old enough to pick up a guitar, but his first official credit when working with Mr. Harrison Sr. would not be until the All Things Must Pass anniversary release, the 30th anniversary release, sorry, where he played electric piano on the bonus track I Live For You. Then he became much more involved in his father's recording process, much more so than James ever has, during, uh, obviously, George's final years on the Brainwashed album, and, you know, he was producer on that album, he helped write songs, he played instruments, and this gave him enough insight and experience in one short moment to totally understand his father's music and ethic and spirit, and, ah, it's just such both a joy and a shame to see Danny Harrison on stage as a part of this concert. He doesn't do a song like Eric. He does decide to stay out of the limelight, and it does make sense. It would be such an awful, awkward moment if Danny went up and pretended to be his dad. And thank God he doesn't. He's just one of those faces that's fun to pick out in the crowd. He pretty much plays with almost every act, you know, strumming his acoustic guitar in the background, he's one of many rhythm guitar parts, and whilst there isn't too much to talk about his stage work or stagecraft, he's just part of those good vibes, and he, this concert wouldn't be the same without his presence there. And Olivia Harrison is right, he does look just like George, and that alone is enough to bring a tear to your eye. It really is. Anyway, now that the main guitar is sorted, it's time for us to move on to everyone's second favourite string-based instrument, Let's talk a bassists. Starting off, we have Klaus Vorman, and rather like Danny Harrison, arguably more so, you all should totally know who Klaus Vorman is by now, as his relationship with George goes all the way back to the Hamburg days. Of course, the story goes that Klaus had an argument with Astrid Kircher one night. He stormed out. He went to the, the Keller Club, I believe, and saw the Beatles play the rest as they say, again, is history. The Beatles ended up living with Klaus and his family, and they became really caring and nurturing for the Beatles. Klaus and Astrid then changed the Beatles' look and introduced them to a load of culture, and they would become, you know, real formative figures in the early Beatles story, with all of it culminating in Klaus designing the album cover, the iconic album cover for Revolver. Now, something I've always admired about Klaus, and this is definitely me projecting here, folks, but I like the idea that he was able to strike whilst the iron was hot and prepare for it. Like, he knew that George was never going to need another guitarist. 
likely he was never going to need another drummer. But my gosh, it wouldn't have taken anyone who was close to George to be a genius to realise that maybe he wasn't totally satisfied with his bassist. And so Klaus learnt the bass, maybe even in secret. In my head, it was definitely in secret. And then when it came time to record All Things Must Pass, suddenly George is in need of a bassist, and that's when Klaus strikes. He was the main bass for those sessions, appearing on 13 out of the 24 tracks on the album, which means he's easily, if not the most featured artist on the, on the record besides George, and it would be short of to actually do a list of songs he doesn't appear on, but fuck it. Uh, he's on I'd Have You Anytime, My Sweet Lord, Wawa, Isn't It a Pity, If Not For You, Behind That Locked Door, The Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp, Let It Roll, Awaiting On You All, All Things Must Pass, I Dig Love, I Remember Jeep, Out Of The Blue, and I Live For You. Then, shortly after that, Klaus cemented his role as George's go-to bass guy by playing the bass at the concert for Bangladesh, before going on to continue his work with George throughout his career, playing bass on Living in the Material World, Dark Horse, and Extra Texture. As far as the show goes, Klaus is a real Easter egg for fans here. It seems clear that he did not want to be focused on at all and was purely doing it for George. Uh, he didn't want any of the spotlight whatsoever. And he is barely in the show, even when compared to, like, Jules Holland and Danny Harrison. You know, it's a real Easter egg. Really keep your eyes peeled, folks. But he was not the only bass player for this show. The other one was by the name of Dave Bronze. And I'm not going to lie, folks, I literally cannot find any information on this guy whatsoever in relation to George Harrison. If you type in Dave Bronze and George Harrison, all you end up with in terms of hits are related to this concert, meaning I cannot find any example of them working together on or off stage. Uh, because of this, I'm going to just assume they were either the deepest of friends off stage, or he's just one of Eric's people. When speaking of the experience, Bronze is quoted as saying, I'm sure it goes without saying that the whole experience was mind-boggling. From the very first day's rehearsal until the concert itself, one was aware that something really unique was unfolding, and for me, to be a part of it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And by the sounds of it, Dave, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity as well. I don't know who you are. <laughs> I can hear some of you going, Oh, Sam, leave Dave Bronze alone. Yeah, that household name. Let's move on to drummers and percussion now. And our first drummer is a man named Jim Capaldi. He was the drummer for Traffic and was a very in-demand session musician by the time they had disbanded. And whilst I can't find any examples of Capaldi on a George record, he would almost certainly have known George as Steve Winwood played the keys on the George Harrison self-titled album. So yeah, folks, maybe this is another one of those moments where they were just friends in real life more than anything. I mean, Capaldi only did one gig with Eric beforehand, so he, it can't be that. Of course, Winwood being the guitarist for Traffic, for those who didn't know. Also, Traffic was founded in Birmingham, my hometown. Woo! Shout out to me and Denny. Now, whilst Capaldi isn't on a George record, it seems that George was quite the fan when flipped the other way around, as he featured on Capaldi's 2001 album, Living on the Outside, which featured in addition to George, Steve Winwood, 
Paul Weller, Gary Moore and Ian Pace. The presumably quite ill Harrison played guitar on the track Anna Julia, an English translation of the song by Brazilian band Los Hermanos. Jim would also shortly die of cancer on the 28th of January 2005. And you know what, folks? We've already listened to one of the final performances of George Harrison. It makes sense that we listen to another one. And you know what? I've already put so much music in this episode anyway, I may as well just lie in the bed that I've made. Let's go! Can't you hear that no less symphony? It's playing just for me. It's the same old misery Trying to bring me down And I just want to cry out loud And tell you how I feel Seeing your face in every cloud Is making my heart beat harder For the chance to be near you And whenever I see you And there's nothing can hold Julia, Julia, Julia 
for our next drummer, we have Jim Keltner. And this is a name you'll probably be familiar with from one degree or another, especially if you've seen the Living in the Material World documentary. He's a real close friend of George. He, you know, you always see his name about or his face about whenever there is something to do with the man. He was the main drummer for the concert of Bangladesh. And of course, George never forgot anyone who came through for him on that day. And it led to a fruitful relationship between the two of them as Keltner would go on to drum on Living in the Material World, Dark Horse, Extra Texture, Somewhere in England, Gone Tropo, Cloud Nine, and Brainwashed. I think that might be the most appearances of any single musician in George Harrison's entire discography. Well done, Jim. Next up, oh my God, there are so many drummers. We have Henry Spinetti. Award yourself extra points if you recognise that name as the chap who actually played drums on Tug of War and was the drummer for the July 21st lineup for the Chubba VCCR sessions. So yeah, this guy is definitely in the world of session drumming. Though, in terms of George collabs, he hadn't really done much besides playing the drums on Gontropo. But, once again, unfortunately for him, he had also appeared on three Eric Clapton albums by the time Eric had started putting out the casting call. So again, he's one of Eric's people who thankfully had a somewhat minor single connection to George. But again, again, the names we don't recognise are probably way closer to George in ways we'll never know. And for our last drummer, we actually have a percussionist by the name of Ray Cooper. And that is another face slash name you might know from the Living in the Material World documentary, as he is the bald chap at the very start in the glasses who basically cannot do the interview and talk about it in a frivolous way as he, as he talks about, as it is still, even then, still too sad to talk about. Now, Cooper was a frequent collaborator with George musically, and we'll talk about that in a second, but his big contribution to George's life, really, was actually in terms of the films that George worked on and his company Handmade Films, and, you know, whilst George is a great innovator and thinker and ideas guy, he doesn't like going into the office and doing all the nitty gritty filing and that kind of thing. And so he needed someone in the office to represent him and his interests in handmade films. And that was Ray Cooper. In addition to that business assistance, though, Cooper, when not doing percussion on every one of Elton John's albums, he would actually do the percussion on the George Harrison self-titled album, he would then do percussion on Somewhere in England, but would also work his way up all the way to co-producer on that album. He did the production on Gone Troppo, as well as doing the percussion, marimba, glockenspiel, electric piano and various sound effects on that album. And despite losing production status to Jeff Lynne, Cooper still appeared as a percussionist on both Cloud9 and Brainwashed. Also, he did a bit of drumming on them as well, which you don't really see all that often. And, folks, I haven't really talked about the individual drummers here all that much. And that is because you really can't say all that much about four drummers playing the same beats at the same time. Like, the audio isn't a mess or anything. But as well produced as it is, it doesn't mean all the individual instruments, especially production, are at all separate or able to be distinct in any way. So I'm just going to say the overall drumming and percussion is absolutely fantastic. It's ace. But sadly, I can't give anyone any specific credit. 
Then we're going to move on to keyboards. And for this show, the only official keyboardist who stays on keyboards the entire time is Chris Stainton. He was a member of the Grease Band, a.k.a. Joe Cocker's backing group. Obviously, Joe Cocker did uh, a cover of George's Something before George ever did, as well as a cover of She Came In Through the Bathroom Window and with a little help from my friends. He was there for all of those recordings. And Chris Stainton also toured extensively with and appeared on loads of Eric Clapton albums from 1980 to 2016, as well as appearing on Ringo's Old Wave, Jim Capaldi's Whale Meet Again, and Gary Brooker's Lead Me to Water. So clearly he's one of these guys who's just a part of this crowd. Then on saxophone, tenor sax specifically, we have Jim Horn. He played the saxophone and did the horn arrangements for the concert for Bangladesh. He played the sax and the flute, as well as arranging all the horns on Living in the Material World. There was a bit of sax he did on Extra Texture. And on Cloud Nine, he played both baritone and tenor saxes on the title track, Wreck of the Hesperus and Got My Mind Set on You, which is a big song to have done the sax on, actually. Then we also have Tom Scott on the alto sax, or alto sax. He played the saxophone, the flute, and the organ, as well as arranging all the horns on Dark Horse. Uh, And what sax Jim Horn didn't play on Extra Texture, you can bet that Tom Scott did. And for Somewhere in England, he once again did all the horns, and also an instrument called the Lyricon. Not sure what that is. Let's quickly look it up. Man looks up something on internet. And it is described here as an electronic wind instrument, the first ever wind controller to be constructed, known, known as a Computone Wind Synthesizer Controller. Definitely got to go check that one out. Then on backing vocals, we have Katie Kisun and Tessa Niles. They were both backing vocalists for George's 1991 Japanese tour. And that's all I can find out about these two girls. They do a bang-up job here, though. And my God, are they ever the most Clapton-esque backing vocalists ever. And then finally, folks, we come to the other two bands that come on stage during the concert to replace the other players. And I'm not going to go through them with much detail or even the minor detail of the last couple of people because they're bands in their own right with their own stories and own dynamics. So I'm just going to quickly go through, first of all, the Heartbreakers, the backing band for Tom Petty. There we have Mike Campbell on guitar. Scott Thurston on guitar and harmonica, Ron Blair on the bass, Steve Ferrone on the drums. He was actually the drummer for the 1991 Japanese tour for Harrison as well. And then we have Ben Trench on the keyboards. And secondly, slash finally, we have Joe Brown's band, which features Neil Gauntlet on guitar, Dave Rico Niles on bass, and Phil Capaldi on drums making him the second Capaldi on drums for the show, and no, they are not related. Right, now that I've gone through all of those names, folks, there is probably one rather glaring omission. Yes, everyone. Well, I mean, no, everyone. Bob Dylan did not appear at the concert for George. I mean, I'm going to mention this again when me and Dylan talk about Handle With Care, but... It just feels bad, man, that we don't have all available Wilburys on deck, ready to pull rank and do the damn song. And the prospect of what Bob would have played in the set is also 
far too juicy what-if question to simply ignore. He was tentatively expected to take part, but about two weeks prior to the event, he announced without further explanation that he would be unable to be there. The initial rumour was that he had a clashing date with his solo tour, but a quick check of the dates will show that his 2002 leg of the never-ending tour ended on the 22nd of November, which is a week before the concert for George. So, is it that he was simply too exhausted from his own tour to perform? If so, that's a pretty lame reason. I hope it's something more akin to like it being too emotional for him, or something like that. I don't know, just him being Bob Dylan may be enough of a reason for him not to go. Like, if he went, and like, you know, oh, there's Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney, all of that might be a bit too much and perhaps take away from George. And perhaps in his eyes, the best way to honour his friend was not to get up on stage in front of the world and kind of stage him up, but to do so in other quieter ways. The point is, we don't know why Bob Dylan decided not to do this. And the fact that we haven't had a definitive answer is the reason why we're still debating it to this day. But again, it is a bummer that he didn't come out and do something like If Not For You, the song that Dylan and George covered on All Things Must Pass, something like that. Then again, the set list is packed as is, and stuff was cut for time on both the CD and LP versions of the album. And it is so perfect in its own little way, and it may upset the balance... I mean, it would have been irrevocably changed by the presence of such an icon, so maybe it's for the best that he didn't show up. But it's not like Bob didn't do anything in honour of George and his memory. To say one thing in Bob's favour here, I will point out that he did, in fact, do a cover of George's Something on that never-ending tour that year, and apparently he had it recorded and sent in a copy to the Concert for George team to do with what they will for the show. But then that raises the question, you know, if he did give it to Clapton and the Harrisons, specifically to be used in the show, why was it ultimately not? Like, is it because of the poor quality of the recording? Is it because they didn't like the performance? Is it because they didn't want, like, a video performance in the middle of all this live stuff? Or maybe it's simply a case of, you know, if you didn't show up on the night, you are not involved. I don't know. None of us know. Again, this is all shrouded in mystery. It's one of the sadder legacies of the concert for George. You know, we've had years to talk about it and ask Bob about it since and still nothing. But hey, you know, let's at least end on a more positive note and have a little listen to the version of something of course, Winwood being the guitarist for Traffic, for those who didn't know. Also, Traffic was founded in Birmingham, my hometown. Woo! Shout out to me and Denny. But uh, we can't make it, and I just wanted to do this song though, in remembrance of George because we were such good buddies. <laughs> Thank you. 
folks before we start wrapping things up and move on to the next two episodes where you're going to be listening to mine and dylan seavey's own opinions for the best part of five hours we best at least somewhat act humble by going through some of the opinions of a few other people first as we look at some of the critical reception for the concert for george now i know there are technically a bunch of things that could be being reviewed here the film, the album, the live show itself, and I will point out which is which where appropriate, but a commonality that you'll find with any of these reviews is that they tend to be reviewing the gig, the experience, the concert for George as a whole, and it's going to be quite hard to tell what they're reviewing without the title or prefix. That being said, this is going to be a reasonably short section compared to the normal, uh, as seemingly no one has anything that bad to say about it leading to very little back and forth it's amazing for us fans uh, for critical discussion not so much but let's dive in uh, gavin martin when reviewing the gig itself in uncut magazine in february 2003 said musical director eric clapton succeeded in highlighting all the elements that made his longtime friend a singular force in rock history ultimately the show transcended mere obligation to become a great act of love and compassion 
one that made the collective heart soar. It was certainly the best sort of memorial. Harrison's greatest compositions brought to life in all their gleaming, deathless vitality. Then on the 2nd of December 2002, we have Alexis Pedetris reviewing the gig itself in The Guardian, and he says, The overstaffed group makes the inevitable racket of nine guitarists and three drummers together. Nevertheless, the event's warmth sweeps the audience along. One standing ovation follows another. Then he continues to conclude the article with the longest paragraph in place to basically do what I'll do over the next two episodes, which is to make a few jokes at Paul's expense. He says, Before Joe Brown plays a final moving reading of Gus Kahn's 1920s standard I'll See You In My Dreams, the ensemble rampage through a cacophonous wah-wah. It's a curious decision. Wah-wah is a bitter song written after Harrison stormed out of a Beatles rehearsal, accusing McCartney of patronising him by telling him how to play a solo. But tonight, McCartney is pounding at the piano, stage right, a sideman on a Harrison masterpiece about how ghastly life in the Beatles was. It's hard to suppress the sort of sardonic chuckle that Harrison frequently used when discussing his nightmare time as a fab, and conclude that it's what George would have wanted. Stephen Holden, reviewing the film in the New York Times, said, The sweet, solemn music of George Harrison, who died two years ago, has rarely sounded more majestic in the sweeping performances of the enlarged, star-studded band that gathered in London at Royal Albert Hall on November 22nd to commemorate his legacy. And Concert for George, David Leland's moving documentary of that event, mirrors the elegiac, happy-sad quality of music that distilled the more spiritually heady aspirations of a segment of old-time hippie culture. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually completely lost what he was talking about at the end there. Maybe it's just the way I read it. I don't know. But fortunately, he has another quote, a much better quote, in this article that I'll bring up when we cover photograph in what I assume will be part three of this series. Then we have Sean Perry reviewing the Blu-ray release on VintageRock.com, who said, Of all of the tributes that have taken place for Fallen Legends, this has to rate as one of the classiest affairs yet. Then, well, actually, we have one that isn't that positive, actually. Uh, Stephen Thomas Irwin, the main reviewer from RateYourMusic.com, wrote, The most noteworthy and moving set is by McCartney, who does a lovely version of All Things Must Pass has fun with For You Blue, and kicks off something only accompanied by a ukulele, an instrument beloved by George, and an arrangement that works so well it's a bit of a disappointment when the full band kicks in. While this isn't an album that you will likely get much play, seeing this in person would have been remarkable. At home, it's much more likely that you'd play George's own record as tribute instead of listening to this. It's a very good tribute concert, one that's heartfelt and enjoyable. Okay, it wasn't that bad, but it was you know, a little less positive than the rest. Though, thankfully, the users on the site were a little more positive than the main man at the helm. Michael McKinnon on RateYourMusic.com wrote, This is a classic live album, maybe one of the best ever, showcasing the world's finest musicians and songwriters together. This is how it's done. This is the pinnacle of what is possible. Everything and everybody involved with this masterpiece is steeped in mysticism and rich history, and the flawless, oft-times biblical performances reflect just how epic the whole thing truly is. Robert Matthews on RateYourMusic.com also wrote, 
I think this is the best live music album ever. A fitting memorial to a musical genius named George Harrison, who left us all too soon. If I'm a very good person, and if reincarnation really exists, I hope to come back just for one night to see and hear the concert for George at the Royal Albert Hall. An anonymous writer for Time Out, the website not the magazine, said, With the exception of Harrison's fresh-faced son Danny, who strums nervously throughout, most of them look as old as the hills. Their musicianship at times, too, shows signs of having lost its luster. Yet, as the concert develops, the better it gets. Few of today's youngsters will be queuing to see a bunch of grandads rolling out a selection of songs from the 60s and 70s. 40 to 50-somethings, though, can't begrudge a few old codgers reuniting and reminiscing. Besides, the film amply demonstrates that George penned some damn fine songs. Garfield Akers wrote on RateYourMusic.com Not the kind of thing you'll be taking off your shelf very often, but it's a well-judged tribute to The Quiet Beetle. Often these things can veer into garishness, but not here. Whoever curated it very much had their love for George at their heart of this. Clapton gives one of his best performances in a very long time, and McCartney and Starr provide touching tributes to their old friend. Billy Preston is a great voice also, and Tom Petty makes I Need You sound far greater than it did on Help. And finally, we have Tim Regler on RateYourMusic.com, who concludes, At the end of the day, the collection is a real testament to the blossoming of skill which began around 1965 and continued into George's solo career. The songs speak for themselves. No need to list them. There's a lot of love on this album, which is also fitting, because love is something that George projected into the world. The beautiful suite of Indian music on here was written especially for this tribute, and there's love in every note. It's stunning. Performances are all excellent all around, with nary a clunker in the bunch. I've seen tributes that were horrible, but this isn't. And there we are, everyone. There we are, folks. That is everything I know about the concert for George. Oh my gosh, there was so much to cover there. I never knew that the background for this film, this concert, this show would have been as in-depth as it was, especially with like so much of it being inaccessible and up to conjecture. But wow, I'm glad we managed to fill that one out, even though there was a lot of music in there. I do apologize. I really wasn't trying to stretch it out, at least this this time anyway. <laughs> this episode has also been in the pipeline for ages. Now, uh, me and Dylan had our conversations a couple of months ago now, so I am very glad to finally have this out. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you are ready for the next two episodes, which are going to be me and Dylan going through the concert song by song. And whilst it mostly is an album review, of course, we're still going to be talking about the highlights of the film as well. Lots to look forward to there, so let's conclude. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I have been your host, Sam Wall. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry, Krishna, and no more autographs. Play us out, Denny.
Thank you.